Awesome to see you all here this morning. We're, we're just grateful that you're here. If you're a guest, we're grateful that you're worshiping with us. If you're watching and worshiping on SOCC.TV, we're thrilled that you've joined us as well. We're in the second part of a two-part series on Live Like God Owns Everything. Uh, let, me, let me just, you know, Quentin said a few minutes ago that I was giving him a hard time for saying up to snuff, you know, because people are sick and that kind of a thing. I use that expression too. All, all my point was, what is snuff? <laughs> you know, if when we're bad, we're not up to snuff, then when we're good, do we say, how you doing? I'm snuff. <laughs> uh, you know, I worry about these things. You know, they kind of work on, on my mind. Last week, let me, let me do a, a PS to last week real quick, all right? Uh, in lieu of our uh, traditional gratitude offering, uh, which we've done for years and years and years, we're going to try something a little bit new this year. We're going to participate in what's Giving Tuesday. Now, this has become sort of a thing across the, the, the country that with uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday, there's Giving Tuesday. It's a way of reminding us to keep things balanced. And so our challenge is that we'll give back to the church, $57 in honor of our congregation's 57th birthday, which comes up in December. And as with other previous gifts over the holiday season, we've always given 10% to the benevolence. We're going to do that again this year. We just thought it might be kind of a fun way to do something where a lot of people across the land are giving back to the kingdom, giving back to things that they're going to do. So you'll learn a little bit more about that in an email this week, but think about just sharing in a way on uh, giving Tuesday. It's a, this is a new one for me. Well, can you believe Thanksgiving is already this week? I don't know how we got here so soon. It just seems like this year has flown by. This month in Naperville, Illinois, 50 volunteers will serve on the Butterball Rescue Squad and talk Americans through hundreds of turkey crisis moments over these next few days and weeks leading up to the holidays. The Butterball Hotline has been doing this for the last 39 years, and oh, the stories they tell. I've come to the conclusion there are a lot of places I would not want to eat on Thanksgiving Day. One father called in about how to thaw a turkey when it was too late in the game to do it in the refrigerator, which is the safest way to do it, and they told him that he should do a cold water bath. And so he put the kids in the tub, bubbles, toys, and the turkey. I don't think I would like that. Others have used their hot tubs to thaw their turkeys. Oh, Two youngsters were watching their grandmother fix the turkey, and when grandma turned her back, they put their matchbox cars into that big cavity of the turkey, <laughs> thinking it was a cool garage. Yeah, two hours later, they had real hot rods with those matchbox toys. 83-year-old Marge Klindera. A home, a retired home economics teacher has been there from the very first Thanksgiving hotline and is viewed by those who work with her and by those who call in as the best around when it comes to answering turkey questions. As a matter of fact, people will call in and if she's not on duty, they say, I'll call back. There are a lot of crises moments that go along with the holidays and cooking and everything else. Answering turkey questions is one thing. But dealing with our Thanksgiving attitude and heart is another. This wonderful day, this period of Thanksgiving, reminds us of how much for which we have to be thankful. Let me, let me ask you if you recognize these names. John Allerton, Alice Rigsdale, John Crackstone, Thomas English, Dorothy Bradford, 
Sarah Eaton, George Soule. You probably don't, but we should. If I had introduced them as pilgrims, you would have readily known who I was talking about. Of the 102 pilgrims that journeyed to this new world, enduring a disease-ridden 66-day voyage on the Mayflower in a space the size of a volleyball court, you'd, you'd want to give thanks for them. Of the 102, only 53 survived the year to celebrate the first harvest in Plymouth Colony. And of that group, of that 53, only four were women. Nearly 50 graves dotted the hillside as a reminder of their tragic losses. So it is somewhat surprising to me that this ragged band of pilgrims didn't load up the Mayflower and sail back to England at that first opportunity and say, well, it was a grand experiment, but it failed. Those who died that first winter did not die in vain. Those who stayed because of their resilience, because of their indomitable attitudes, because of their remarkable faith, helped set a tone that would bring this nation into being. We read an awful lot about Thanksgiving in Scripture. But there's something about Psalm 100 that just kind of captures it all. Perhaps David was contemplating his own attitude, his own spirit, his own heart when he penned these worshipful words. Wouldn't you have liked to have heard the music that accompanied this particular psalm? I, I, it had to be something of great celebration. And this, folks, is the only psalm that is designated as a psalm of thanksgiving. And basically, it was comprised of two stanzas, each one of which is a call to worship or an invitation to praise God. And then it supplies the reasons for doing so. And there are seven imperative verbs in these five verses, each of which calls from us some kind of a response. Now, we don't do this often, but I'm going to ask you to do it with me this morning. I want you to stand, and I want to read out loud Psalm 100. It'll be here, up here on the screen. And I think sometimes standing when we read scripture just helps us lift it up to God and embeds it in our hearts even better. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. You can be seated. Here then is God's wisdom for living in thankfulness. Three requests are three prayers jump out of this text. Here's the first. Lord, help me honor you with my mouth. Verses 1 and 2 again. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Did you catch the three imperatives of that stanza? Shout, worship, come. 
These opening verses address the importance of verbally expressing our praise and thankfulness to God. If there is an unfortunate description of our 21st century culture, it is that we have become a people, I think, who lack a grateful spirit. In the poetic words of William Shakespeare, Blow, blow, thou winter wind, thou art not so unkind as man's ingratitude. We, in this day and time, seem to expect instant gratification, and we complain when it doesn't happen. You show me an ungrateful person, and I'll show you a miserable and lonely human being. Thankfulness, or I should say thanklessness, is nothing new. The Gospels record the story of when Jesus, up near the border of Samaria, healed 10 lepers, gave them a new lease on life. Leprosy was a, well, if it was the worst kind of leprosy, you were going to die from it. And he healed these 10 lepers, cleansed their bodies. Only one out of the 10 came back to say thank you. <sighs> I have a minister friend I was talking to this past week who also teaches a class at one of our Christian colleges. And uh, as the last semester he was teaching, came to a conclusion, he said, I'm going to treat you all to uh, a, a sandwich from one of the favorite sandwich places near the campus. And so he took down personal orders from every student in the class of how they wanted their sandwich, made all of that, paid for it out of his own pocket. On the last day of class when they were going to have this celebration, three of those who'd ordered didn't even bother to show up for class that day. And the kids that were in the class all grabbed a sandwich, bolted for the door. Not one said, thank you. Well, what's wrong with a culture that, that lives like that? And that, folks, was at a Christian college. Thank you is just so important. Gratitude doesn't come naturally. I get it. You have to be taught but it's so very important. And, and for when everything is well, we take life for granted. It seems that only when we face problems do we really at that point in time rediscover how much for which we have to be thankful. It, after that first Thanksgiving celebration at Plymouth Colony in 1621, it would be over 150 years later before we celebrated another National Thanksgiving Day. It was, it was a Thanksgiving after the hard-fought battle at Saratoga in Americans' battle for independence in 1777. And then it would be nearly another 100 years, and in the midst of a bloody civil war, when Abraham Lincoln proclaimed in 1863 that the last Thursday of November would be a day of thanksgiving. And it wouldn't be until we got to the 20th century, more than 40 years after that, that the celebration of thanksgiving really took hold. I'm grateful that it remains a simple holiday. Not many decorations, not many gifts given. It has been born out of adversity and difficulties. And many of the greatest expressions of thanksgiving have incurred, occurred under stressful circumstances. That's really true of the church. Paul wrote some of his most incredible, positive, uplifting letters while stuck in the dark, dank, mamertine prison in Rome. The church expressed some of its finest gratitude toward God in the midst of persecution. And by the way, the church grew best in its periods of persecution. You see, anybody, anybody can be thankful when everything is good. It's what 
is our attitude when things don't go so well? What is our spirit of gratitude when, well, our attitudes are in the dump? When you sit down this week to a meal of turkey dressing and all the trimmings, I mean, who can't be thankful? <laughs> and if you can't really be thankful then, what does that make us? The farmer stopped at a restaurant for lunch. When his food was served, he bowed his head and said a prayer. Some cocky guys sitting at a table nearby shouted, Hey, Pops, back where you come from, does everybody pray before they eat? The farmer said, Everybody but the pigs. <laughs> now, there was more to the farmer's ply, reply than what meets the eye. Are you aware of the fact that pigs can't look up? That they are physically, their anatomy prevents them from being able to look up? Everybody but the pigs. What does it make us when we can enjoy all of God's blessings and never look up to say thank you? Anybody can be thankful in the good times, but when you can be thankful in life's difficult moments, then you're expressing genuine gratitude. The three imperatives of this text all involve our mouth and our gratitude. Shout for joy, worship with gladness, come with joyful songs. You cannot read these opening lines and conclude anything less that when we come into the presence of God, it must be with joyful expressions and words that are filled with gratitude. Regardless of the condition of your life and your current existence, we owe God a debt of positive gratitude. So this Thanksgiving, wherever you are and whoever you are with, if it's with family, great. If it's with friends, great. <clears throat> Take a few moments and verbally express your thanks around the room. Find at least one thing that you can say out loud in the presence of your friends and in the presence of God that you are thankful for because that's what this psalm directs us to do. Shout, worship, come with joyful songs. Here's the second prayer. Lord, help me honor you with my mind. I like what Don Kistler wrote. The person with the discontented heart has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much and everything that God does for him is too little. Verse 3 of Psalm 100 reads, Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Now, the next two imperatives are not as clear in the English, uh, but, the, but the one is, and they both are connected to that very same kind of thing. And this is a mental activity. Okay, the first is a verbal activity. This is a mental activity. Know that the Lord, he is God. This is not some kind of just simple head knowledge, but it's experiential knowledge. The Lord is the one true living God. Paul said to the church at Philippi, he said, I consider everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Two verses later, he writes, I want to know Christ. So how do we get to know God? Well, God has revealed himself to us in his word and in his son. How do we get to know who Jesus is, his son? We learn from him and about him in the word. So I'm going to suggest that you can't really know God apart 
from the word of God because that's where he revealed himself to us. So when the psalmist says, know that the Lord, he is God, it's an imperative. Get to know this, God, this king of kings and Lord of lords, which means you and I have got to get into the word. In 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt declared the week of Thanksgiving to be National Bible Week and encouraged people to get into the word. Either read the Bible yourself or listen to it being read. Ten days after that declaration, America was thrust into World War II with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And Americans were reminded with a foundation of God's word that they'd get through it. By the way, did you know that the Bible was read on NBC News in between reports that were coming from Pearl Harbor? Did you know that every president since FDR has followed the tradition of honoring God's word by declaring the week of Thanksgiving as National Bible Week? I don't hear anything about it. But this week is National Bible Week. So take time this week as part of your Thanksgiving celebration to get into the word and know God better. After all, it is he who has made us and we are his. That's a relationship. And I'm convinced that we cannot truly understand the heart of gratitude apart from a relationship with the Father. We are his sheep and he is our shepherd. Sheep are fidgety, restless animals. They have a lousy sense of direction. They're easily spooked. They will pick a field clean right down to the dirt. They are followers and not leaders, and they will follow to their own destruction. That's us. Philip Keller writes that sheep require four things in order to find rest. Before they will lie down, they will need to be free of fear, free from conflict and friction in the flock, free from flies and parasites, and free from hunger. And when the sheep have that freedom, they will lie down in green pastures. David, the shepherd who became a king and the writer of Psalms, understood that better than we. You see, we do too have the same problems that the sheep. It's, it's no wonder God calls the sheep. He is our good shepherd. And it is the good shepherd who leads and cares for the flock and eventually takes us home. Know the Lord. Know him. He is your good shepherd. Be grateful for all he's done. Here's the third prayer. Lord, help me honor you with my actions. President Theodore Roosevelt wrote this. He said, let us remember that as much as has been given us, much will be expected from us. And that true homage comes from the heart as well as from the lips and shows itself in deeds. I don't know what the president's motive was for writing that, but boy, it sure fits the summary of this passage of scripture. Praise with our lips, praise with our minds, and now praise him with our deeds and actions. Verses four and five, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Here are the last three imperatives. Enter, give, praise. All three are action words that describe that part of our gratitude comes from when we serve. 
One of the temple offerings was called a thank offering. It was a sacrifice that was brought to the temple as an expression of gratitude toward God. It is the most frequently mentioned of the Old Testament peace offerings. And did you know that the thank offering in the Old Testament concluded with a meal involving the one who made the offering, the members of his family, and the religious leader of his area? A meal, a Thanksgiving meal. Maybe what we do on Thursday isn't so far off the mark after all. Sacrifices at the temple didn't happen just because God needed the meat or because some God, how God sadistically took pleasure in the death of his domestic creation. As a matter of fact, nothing could be farther from the truth. To the contrary, the sacrifices served as a constant reminder that our actions, our choices, have consequences, and that a gift must cost us something to be a gift. The Old Testament sin offering points to Jesus who would suffer for our consequences. The Old Testament thank offering points to our need to express our gratitude to God for his gift. And that gift mess must cost us something or it's not a gift. David understood that when, when he was caught in the midst of one of the greater dilemmas of his life. Toward the end of his life, 2 Samuel chapter 24 tells us the story. God has brought a plague upon Israel and the angel of the Lord is standing at the very gates of Jerusalem ready to, um, ready to put this plague to work on the, on the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem. And David is going to intercede, plead with God to withhold the punishment for what the nation had done and what the king himself had done. And so David hurries to this site, it's, it's on a hill, and, and he buys this ground from a fellow by the name of Aronah who owned it. He had a threshing floor there and everything else. And so David approaches Aronah with the idea of purchasing, and this is what Aronah says to him in 2 Samuel 24, 23. Oh, king, Aronah gives all of this to the king. Aaronah also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. Now listen to David's response. But the king replied to Aaronah, no, no. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land. And the plague on Israel was stopped. I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. A gift costs us something or it's not a gift. <laughs> if we re-gift at Christmas, is it really a gift? No, it didn't cost us anything. It pro probably doesn't qualify. Here's another important principle. If it doesn't cost us something, we won't appreciate it. I'm much more interested in those areas where I have an investment of time, energy, and resources. If it costs me something, I care about it. If it doesn't cost me anything, eh, out of sight, out of mind. Those who celebrate the victory are those who sacrifice the most to achieve it. Fans may cheer, but I'm telling you, it's the team on the field or it's the team on the court that celebrates most because they're the ones that accomplished it. We don't give because God needs it, but because we need to give. It's, it's an investment that keeps us interested in what God does in his kingdom. It's a disciplined sacrifice so that we'll care more about the work of God. 
And God, God gives to us without the promise of anything in return. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact, seriously, that Jesus could have come to earth and died for the privilege of washing away our sins and nobody would have accepted that? What, what if Jesus came and went through everything that he went through and nobody said, I want him as my savior? That was a risk. It could happen, you know. There are plenty who have done that. What if nobody? But God was willing to take the risk that one, just one, might embrace him as Lord and Savior. Doesn't that kind of a God, with that kind of a sacrificial heart, deserve our thankfulness? And serving in his name may be one of the finest expressions of thanksgiving. Doing something to advance the kingdom. Doing something to help somebody else in the name of Christ. Maybe you've already seen this. I ran across this clip uh, this weekend, as a matter of fact. Just touched my heart at what a, a, a simple gift can do. Just, just watch this little news, news article. What does it mean to see? Watch what happens when Jonathan Jones puts on these special high-tech glasses. <laughs> Jonathan is extremely colorblind and until this moment had never been able to imagine just how vivid even a classroom could be. His school principal, Scott Hansen, is colorblind too. They are his glasses and you hear how excited he is to share this newly discovered world. Mom, you're going to be in there too. That is so awesome. I told you it's going to be a little emotional. <laughs> a world most of us, of course, take for granted. So when we see Jonathan, with his smiles and his tears, perhaps <laughs> In that a tender moment, here's a kid who's never seen color. Never seen color. And he gets a pair of glasses and a whole new world opens to him. It's not easy for a 12-year-old boy to cry in public in front of his peers. But how could you not just be overwhelmed by such a gift? And, and, and the part I love most, it was his principle that gave him the glasses because he understood what colorblindness is all about. Our God gave to us the greatest gift because when Jesus came, he understood what the power of sin was all about in our lives. Early in the 19th century, the king of Prussia, Frederick William III, found the nation's constant wars had drained the treasury. Things didn't look good. After prayerful consideration, he wrote an open letter to the women of Prussia, asking them to voluntarily bring their silver and gold to be melted down. And in return, he offered a small token of appreciation to anyone who contributed. In exchange for the beautiful jewelry of gold and silver, he gave them a simple cross made of iron. It was inscribed, I gave gold for iron, 1813. The response was overwhelming. The women of Prussia prized the gift from the king more highly than they had prized their former possessions and wore the iron cross with pride. The order of the iron cross was established and members wore no ornaments save a cross of iron for everybody to see. In years to come, it would become Germany's highest medal for sacrifice. We don't have an iron cross. We have something far more precious a wooden cross that stood on top of a lonely hill that teaches us the true meaning of sacrifice and demands of us today a true heart 
of gratitude. Let us come before him with hearts of thanksgiving. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.